Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Chemistry is the word often used to describe that special feeling when two people deeply connect with one another. An Atlanta artist and scholar, Stephanie Cosey, investigates the science behind that feeling and the result is Tender Rhythms, an interactive art installation at Emory University that creates music and visual art when two people relate to each other. We'll hear about the science and art of connection later this hour. First, the Fox Theater reopens on July 27th with royalty, King Crimson, one of the most cited, influential bands in the world, will perform the first live concert at the Fox in over a year. Jacko Jaksic is the lead vocalist, guitarist, occasional flutist, and keyboardist of the British progressive rock band. He joins us now via Zoom. Jacko, welcome to City Lights. Hi. So, King Crimson is among the seminal bands in progressive rock or prog rock. While you are younger and didn't join the group till 2013, I know they had a profound influence on you as a musician years before you became a band member. What distinguished King Crimson's sound from other bands around at the time the group formed in 1968? I think when I first heard the band, I would have been about 11 years old, I think. And uh, I'd been exposed to some of the music from that era. And hearing King Crimson, you immediately realized, whilst not understanding what was going on musically, you certainly knew it was coming from a different place. I mean, and, and to my ears, it had this kind of sense of mystery and majesty that nothing else had so and there was something very intriguing about all of it you know the artwork the sound of the music and I was uh, fortunate enough to see them at a local venue when I was about uh, 13 I think I was Uh, and it completely blew me away it was one of the most significant moments of my life looking back because it really did change everything it, it inspired me to 
want to get better it inspired me to want to play music in that kind of genre so uh ending up actually in the band is just about the maddest childhood dream you could possibly imagine you know oh wow well that sound that distinguished them in 1968 they shied away from psychedelic they incorporated more jazz and classical into the style don't you think yeah, yeah. And it was distinctively kind of European as well. I think that was the other thing I thought, whilst a lot of their contemporaries musical influences were from this side of the pond, um, Crimson was always a bit more kind of European. It went from pastoral English to, as you say, kind of European classical music and uh, along with a kind of jazz influence with the, the horns, etc. to begin with, certainly. Yeah, the band has had quite a journey since its start in the last 50 plus years. There have been more than a few lineup changes. In fact, the group broke up several times and reformed with different band members. The only founding member that remains is Robert Fripp. And he says he's not the band's leader. But how does Fripp help King Crimson retain its original sensibility? Well, he's being disingenuous by saying that he's not the leader. I mean, it, you know, King Crimson can only really be King Crimson if Robert's part of it. I think it's, it's compositionally, there's a certain uh, kind of harmonic information that, that runs through all the, the albums that you can play different tracks from different eras. And on one level, it sounds like a completely different band, but actually there's a kind of harmonic and musical glue that kind of uh, runs all the way through it. And obviously that's, that's emanating from Robert himself. But as individual players, I think rather than hiring guys to do um, his bidding, I think he hires people who he feels can bring this music to life. Someone who gets it, so to speak. Yeah, and obviously yeah, or, you... yeah, who gets it or can or can contribute. You know, I have a history of loving the band and um, uh, my good pal Gavin Harrison, the drummer in the band, wasn't really familiar with them at all. And both are positive things in a way because Gavin approaches it completely differently. Hmm. Robert Fripp is known for mixing unusual time signatures into his songs thanks to his jazz background. Do you think these time signatures helped pave the way for progressive rock as well as heavy metal music down the road? Well, I don't know. I think as a listener, you're not really aware of what's going on. When I heard the music, I thought the music was extraordinary. I didn't know why I thought it was extraordinary. It just sounded that way, you know. So the mix, I guess, and I guess progressive just as a word just means, you know, trying to progress above and beyond normal structures of composition and songwriting. So um, it gets pretty involved, but I'm pretty sure no one knows what's going on. We, we often don't know what's going on. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there are, there are pieces that are like jigsaws and... Um, and have, you know, there's a number of pieces where I'm playing in a different time signature to everybody else. So Does that feel like Dave Brubeck? Um, 
Well, it's kind of beyond Dave Brubeck. It's like being it's like, it's like being Dave Brubeck and then and someone else is banned at the same time, I guess. But the music has a kind of spread. You know, there are moments like that which are very, very tightly arranged and they're like a kind of jigsaw, I guess, a musical jigsaw. And then there are other pieces which are much more open and allow for interpretation and improvisation. It's a combination and it's, it's quite a wide dynamic as a result throughout an evening of a few hours. You know, you, you get to experience all sorts of extremes. But not all polyrhythmic. Not obviously. all polyrhythmic. No, that would drive everyone bonkers, including. <laughs> Most of all those on stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Before you were a part of King Crimson, you fronted the 21st Century Schizoid Band. Yeah. Comprised of former band members. I, ironically enough, yes, I was the only member of the band that hadn't been in King Crimson. You were too young. I was. And see, you were a little King Crimson prodigy at 11 or 13, I guess. Yeah. You were playing different works from the band's past albums. When you joined King Crimson officially in 2013, what was it like when you first walked on stage to perform alongside Robert Fripp? Well, I'd gotten to know Robert quite well by then anyway, because we'd made an album together called uh, A Scarcity of Miracles. And then, of course, we had quite a long rehearsal period. But having said that, walking on stage for that very first gig was sublimely surreal. I think it's like anything that you do in life, you know, there's a kind of pragmatism where you're just going through the stages of your career and the next thing that you're doing. But every now and then you get pulled up and you, you suddenly see yourself kind of objectively as your 13 year old self might do, in which case you just think, how, how on earth did I get here? You know, and I, I definitely had a real moment of that at, at the first gig, you know, especially we did Schizoid Man as an encore. And that was the song that my friend played me when I was 11. And suddenly I'm on stage, I'm performing it, I'm singing it, and I'm standing in between Tony Levin and uh, Robert Fripp. like these pinch me can this possibly yeah. be real yeah yeah absolutely. so is it fair to say after all those band changes over the course of your career it felt like home when you began performing as a member of king crimson i tell you what it felt like i think i've been a professional musician since my late teens and i'd signed endless solo deals and you know and it's very easy to get cynical and you're trying to earn a living and you're doing this, that and the other, and you're doing a lot of stuff that you don't like. And, um, and then you find yourself in a position where it's more than just performing with 
these people you admired from afar as a, as, a, as a teenager, you're also getting back in touch with what made you want to be a musician in the first place. And, and actually, that's, that's the most kind of valuable and heartwarming aspect of it, I think, is, is realising that, you know, comparatively late on in your career, you know, to, to suddenly find yourself doing the very thing that inspired you to want to be a musician in the first place. We can actually say life only got better for you. Uh, yeah, it's uh, you know I've I've led a, I've been very fortunate. I've I've done a lot of amazing things and worked with uh, all sorts of heroes. You know, in fact, just for instance, just before we came out to America for this tour, I just finished mixing the new Jethro Tull album, and so I've been doing a bit of that stuff on the side. I've been remixing albums from my childhood era you know and it's an unbelievable privilege to be able to sit there with the the very multi-tracks of things that I was listening to the final versions of as a kid and and now I get to to kind of reimagine them in surround or whatever but I've done it for uh, I did two Emerson Lake and Palmer albums I've done a number of Jeff oh and, uh, so yeah I've been very fortunate I've worked with an awful lot of of what you know who my heroes were back in back in the day you know so and, and that's all happened in the last 10 or so years so it's been amazing. You know I wondered about Jethro Tull when I saw that you like to play the flute <laughs> and I'm just so glad you brought that up and those bands you mentioned that you loved their sound back in the day I think that influence and sort of tribute you pay to them it all blends into what is ultimately king crimson's original sound i think if what i do within the band works it's actually partly because that's what i was listening to so i'm not pretending to be any of those singers but those singers influenced me as a as a youngster so it's part of how i sing was listening to those people anyway so yeah there's a kind of an organic kind of conclusion to it all in a way as a result yeah. of that yeah then they inform your work yeah if you are just joining us this is city lights on wabe I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Jacko Jacksick, lead singer for the legendary prog rock band King Crimson. Jacko, last October you released your eighth solo album, Secrets and Lies. It also features your bandmates, as well as some other legendary performers. What topics and themes do you explore on this recording? Well, I, the title kind of made itself apparent because of the nature of some of the of most of the songs, you know. There's a lot of personal stuff on there. Uh, there's, I, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of time finding my real family. And it turned out that my real mother was uh, quite a famous singer in Ireland in the 50s. And, uh, but I found her relocated to Arkansas in the 80s. Which, of all uh, places. Of all places, yeah. And for a artistic-driven, liberal-minded uh, uh, kid brought up in the outskirts of uh, London, uh, Arkansas was something of a cultural shock. <laughs> so uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff. It's too complicated, but I got a very complicated background and, and I kept finding out things. I got, a, I got a, a kind of full report on my adoption only last year, early last year. 
And so the kind of narrative that my mother had, had painted about what my life consisted of and the reality, according to the, the documents that I read, just revealed more secrets and more lies that she'd been keeping. And, uh, and so there's a, there's a lot, that's the kind of thread that runs through an awful lot of the, the songs on the records. You know, there's, there's a, some political things too. Um, I was subject to a degree of uh, uh, racist abuse um, at the end of the, uh, the Brexit vote in England. Uh, where, oh, what happened? Um, well, I'd, my, my adoptive father, I used to take him to this um, place in Hammersmith in, in London uh, called the Polish Centre. And on the night of the result, it was, uh, it was covered in horrendous racist graffiti from kind of right-wing uh, Englishmen that are, were celebrating the separation of England from Europe. And I was very saddened by this because, you know, this place had been there for 50, 60 years, and it was in part a recognition of, of, of the Poles' uh, contribution to the war effort. So I was very saddened by that and foolishly posted something to that effect on Facebook. And then, you know, above and beyond your friends, in inverted commas, it then gets shared amongst a, a larger audience. And then uh, I started to get messages informing me that uh, they had won the vote and I had lost. So why don't I <clears throat> go back home? Uh, oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. I was born in London uh, to an Irish mother, so I'm not sure where they wanted me to go back home to. But uh, it seemed to be something that was affecting other parts of the world as well. Um, oh yes as we all know so uh, you know there's a ref reflection about that too deal of kind of bending of the truth involved in the campaign you know and trying to excite that audience uh, to the point where in England certainly the uh, racist attacks have risen uh, exponentially since then. It's horrifying. It and is sadly. Yeah. Certainly you're aware of all that has gone on. Yeah. This side of the pond. Of course. Curious about secrets and lies did you write all of these tracks during isolation at the beginning of the pandemic? No, actually, I didn't. I'd, I'd written most of them before lockdown happened. What it did enable me to do was to take longer finishing it and mixing it and tweaking it. The video for one of the tracks on the album, The Trouble with Angels, won Best Music Video at no less than the Cannes World Film Festival yeah. last February. It's gorgeous. What inspired that song? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> I met somebody uh, when the band played in uh, Monte Carlo. This woman ha was in Monte Carlo because she'd already booked this holiday, um, but it was meant to be her honeymoon. Um, but her husband-to-be died uh, before they got married. As a result of uh, meeting her, we kind of kept in touch and... And uh, it turned out I kind of helped her through 
an insanely difficult period. And, um, and I remember I, I had something similar happen to me when I first flew to America to meet my mother. Uh, I was in a terrible emotional state whilst waiting for a connecting flight in Boston and a complete stranger came up and uh, was wonderful and helped me get through it. And so it's that idea of somebody appearing out of nowhere that you don't know that helps you through this difficult time. And that in turn referenced a movie from the 80s by Wim Wenders called Wings of Desire, which is about these angels that overlook everybody um, in Berlin. The trouble with angels that can So that, so that influenced the song and that influenced the video. But all the plaudits for the video need to go to uh, Sam Chagini, who's an Iranian, young Iranian filmmaker who made the video and, and a very difficult time we had making it too, uh, not just because of COVID, but because of uh, the position that uh, Iran found itself in. Uh, he was meant to come to England to direct me on a, a green screen thing, which we were going to turn into an animation. And of course he was blocked from coming to England because of the assassination of General Soleimani. And uh, it just got very complicated and we ended up having to do it remotely. I was in a little studio in London and he was on Skype. He was directing it from a small room in Tehran whilst I was in London. Uh, it's an amazing video uh, because of his enormous skill and talent and creativity, but I kind of guided where I thought it would go or where I wanted it to go, but uh, he should take all the plaudits for it really. Well, that's very kind, and what a testament to technology. Absolutely, if, yeah. If you can't transcend the politics and zeitgeist, at least we do have these technological resources now. Yeah, and, and, and also, you know, it's, it's also a testament to, to people from such a diverse cultural background working creatively as one with each other, you know? Uh, I, I think it's a highlight for that too, as far as I'm concerned. Beautiful. We talked about jazz and classical influence, uh, Emerson, like in Palmer and Jethro Tull. Would you tell us how your interest in acting and comedy has informed your work? <laughs> well, the comedy was an accident, really. But as a child, I was in... Um, I would, acting was always a thing. I was in local youth theatres and school and my school thought I was talented enough to uh, put me up to be auditioned for the National Youth Theatre and I did a load of auditions and ended up as a member of the National Youth Theatre and then when I first left school I got a job with a touring theatre company which enabled me to get my equity card. I mean I, I, I'm sure there's a, an equivalent here in America but you back then you couldn't work as an actor unless you had an equity card and you couldn't get an equity card unless you had a job. It's one of those Oh, it's the same. Yeah, it's yeah. The same. So, uh, so that was it, really. Uh, the comedy thing is a complete fluke. It was just meeting people. I ended up doing a TV series 
which starred a, an actor called Nigel Planer, who'd been in this revolutionary comedy series in England called The Young Ones, where he played this uh, hippie character. And then I got involved making the album and then we toured. And then, you know, next thing I know, I, I'm suddenly involved in a kind of comedy theatre thing, which I did up in Edinburgh. So it's all part and parcel of performing. And uh, I guess it's another part of what I do. It really was fun to read about. Yeah. King Crimson recently played in Florida, the first show since October of 2019. How does it feel to be back live with the band and crew again? It's a weird combination of unfamiliarity and familiarity, if that doesn't sound too contradictory. I, you know, on the one hand, it's kind of weird to be back. But on the other, it's a bit like a pair of old slippers, you know, seeing the same old faces. And uh, and that's that's lovely. And it was nerve wracking. I have to say it's the most nervous I've been, you know, with the band since we started. I think bearing in mind that I think the last three or four shows we did before the virus took hold uh, of the world was um, we played at uh, Rock in Rio. Um, we headlined the Sunset Stage there in front of about 120,000 people. And, and the last two shows we did were we sold out two nights at a 12,000-seater in uh, Santiago in Chile. And so you go from that to doing nothing, and then coming back is really quite scary. In, in fact, the smaller venues are, are scarier, really, because, uh, you know, it's more intimate. You can see people's faces. You can see the whites of their eyes. Whereas when it's a big crowd, it just it becomes a, it's a bigger block of homogenous thing you know so yeah it was quite nerve-wracking for me anyway a little bit like seeing people for the first time you know after being vaccinated and hugging yeah. or, or yeah, having yeah. dinner together inside artists such as Kurt Cobain and bands of stature including Yes and Genesis all have cited King Crimson as influential to their sound. After 50 years, how does the band continue to influence artists of today's generation? Yeah, I think what we, we're living in a world now where the internet has, uh, you know, many pros and cons. And I think one of the pros is that it's stopped a lot of, people being tribal I think about music I, I have a 19 year old son and he just likes music and he likes music that was released last week and he likes music that was released 50 60 years ago it's all just music to him um, and I we certainly notice particularly particularly in Italy uh, and and when we went south uh, south uh, South America you know there's a lot of young people uh, in, in the audience and um, Gavin and myself, because we're, we're old pals, you know, we quite often wander off of a morning on a day off or the day of the show and, and go and see the local town and have coffee and whatever. And uh, every time in South America, we were stopped 10 or 20 times. And uh, almost certainly the vast majority of those people were under the age of 30, you know. That's so heartening. Yeah, well, it? I think it's, do you know what I mean? It's, I remember growing up in an era where you, you, you kind of, you committed yourself to a style of music, you know, and, uh, and you kind of kept quiet, if you liked, uh, something that was kind of outside of that particular genre. But as I say, you know, me and the kids have this thing in the car where we, we each have a choice of what we play. And I remember my son, you know, as I say, introducing me 
to things I'd never heard of by modern groups, most of which I thought were fantastic. But every now and then he plays something and I'd say, this sounds like it was recorded in the 50s. And he'd say, yeah, it's a bloke called Wes Montgomery. Have you heard of him? And I'd go, yeah, no, I've heard of Wes Montgomery. <laughs> um, but actually, that's rather nice, isn't it? You know, that, it, that it's just viewed as music for the sake of music rather than it being a kind of a, a fashionable accoutrement or something. It, exactly. It, it, it rejects fads and, and shows what's really enduring. Yeah. Jacko, this has been such a joy. Oh, bless you. Thank you very much. Not at all, thank you. And um, I would say this, that uh, although it's not really been advertised as a farewell tour, the, the likelihood of us ever playing stateside again is, uh, is at best slim. So please come and see uh, the band, because it love it or loathe it, it is extraordinary. Jacko Jacksick is the lead singer and multi-instrumentalist for King Crimson. The epic prog rock band is playing at the Fox Theater tomorrow night. They'll be the first performers to take the stage at the Fox in over a year. And you can learn more on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes learns about the art of human connection with installation artist and activist Stephanie Cozy. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. You may recognize that feeling you get when you're really connecting with someone. Sometimes it's called chemistry. Artist and scholar Stephanie Cozy decided to investigate the science behind that feeling. And what resulted is Tender Rhythms, an interactive art installation that creates music and visual art when two people deeply connect with one another. It may sound like science fiction, but this coming weekend you can participate in this artistic experiment at the Emory University Visual Arts Gallery. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently spoke with the artist over Zoom, and here Cozy explains how her interest in human connection began. Well, I was writing my dissertation at Emory on the connections between people. I was very interested in intimacy and the invisible relationship between 
humans. And I just noticed that in philosophy and or, or in our society, we focus a lot on the individual, the autonomous, you know, sing, singular individual. But I was always interested in the connection between us and I wanted to let it talk. And so I was reading about research in neuroscience that they were able to measure through brainwave synchronicity that relationship. And so I found a, a friend of mine, Mike, Dr. Mike Winters, who was doing visualization and sonification of brainwaves. And so we put our passion together and we created an installation that finally gives a voice to this invisible connection between us. It's always there, but we don't see it. So. This is amazing. And you just happened to have a friend in Michael who was interested <laughs> in brainwaves? Yeah, well, I was doing my PhD at Emory and he was doing his PhD at Georgia Tech. And we met at a science event and we just hit it off. We were both interested in music and connection between people. And then, yeah, kind of the, the ball started rolling. It happened very organic. And you also ended up collaborating with artist Daniel Savio, right? Yeah, or uh, the GLAD scientist. Uh, he was in Berlin at the time, but I met him also in Atlanta. Um, he was also part of Georgia Tech. And uh, Michael was doing the sonification. And um, so I wanted to work also with someone who could create visuals. And uh, that's how uh, Danny came on board. All right, so let's do our best to try to describe this for people. It is mm -hmm. an installation experiment that anyone can go to and participate in. So I show up and I choose mm -hmm. to do it with you. What mm -hmm. do the two of us do together? Well, first of all, uh, I'll help you set up the EEG headband. Very simple. It's just like a little headband in, front, in the front of your head. And we put it on your head and on my head. And then we sit down on two chairs facing each other. And um, we can start interacting. We can hold hands or, or have uh, look in each other's eyes or smile. And then slowly our, our brain waves might connect. And then the installation that we created picks up that connection. And from the moment the connection starts, music will start to play. So when you say our brain waves start to connect, mm -hmm. you have to elaborate for me. So yeah, what, what I meant is our alpha brain waves start to synchronize. So um, neuroscientists found out that in social interaction, when people really feel connected, that um, correlates with alpha brain wave synchrony. So our headsets or EEG headsets will measure our alpha brain waves. And um, when yours and mine, when they synchronize, that's when a switch kind of goes off in the installation and all of a sudden from silence, it goes to music to literally give oh. voice to the connection. And so <laughs> as we're connecting and looking at mm -hmm. each other and possibly holding hands, mm -hmm. what's changing visually around us? Yes. Yeah, so we wanted to also visually represent the connection. So before there's a connection, you will see two floating like cloud-like entities, uh, a green one and a red one. And from the moment our brainwaves synchronize and we connect, slowly a gray entity is kind of co-created between the two clouds to represent this third entity that could be the representation of uh, the relationship or the connection that we are slowly developing together. 
And so these entities, they aren't actually in the room with <laughs> us, but we're talking about a projected visual, yes. right? Yes, yes, a projected visual. So there will be two projections, one above me, which you will see, and then one above you, which I will see. So both visuals will represent us two. Like you could be the green cloud and I could be the red cloud. And then together we create this gray tube-like entity between us. And I will see the same visual as you. I see. <laughs> and the music, how much does it vary between participants? Well, the music itself is not going to vary. It is when it will play that will oh. vary. So um, depending on, on how much we connect, there will be uh, more music or, or more silence. But the music will also change a bit in volume. So the, the stronger our connection gets, the stronger the music will also become. That's so interesting. And so what happens if we don't make a connection? Well, then there won't be music. But actually, that has never happened. So don't you worry. <laughs> we actually <laughs> connect so much more than we think. Uh, it's actually kind of always there. And probably even, you know, uh, across space, probably you and I are uh, connecting right now. How have people been reacting to this project? Very positively. It is, you know, it's such a unique experience. We did it at Georgia Tech. Like right before the pandemic, there was a, an art science fair and so many people participated. And it's just wonderful to see people starting to smile when it happens because it's kind of like magic. But, you know, it's always there, but we don't attune to the connection or some do, you know, like I was really fascinated by the fact that sometimes you can say you can feel like there is not a connection with someone but they are like oh I feel a connection and it's your word against theirs tell me more about when one person thinks there's a connection but the other person mm. doesn't what is actually happening that to be honest was one of the reasons I wanted to write a dissertation about this topic because I was mostly you know writing from from like the context of intimacy when you feel like you're not really vibing with someone but they think you are and, mm -hmm. and, and 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 it's like very hard to put words to that and it's really your words against theirs i became very fascinated in like trying to like start at least to give a voice to the connection that the connection can speak up for itself and uh, and although i'm doing this only artistically here i think it's a first step to like shift the the accent or the emphasis from the individuals to the actual connection between us yeah how much are you seeing a variance in the level of connection with people uh we chose to keep it really simple so there's actually three modes only for us there is almost no connection then you won't hear anything there is somewhat of a connection then you'll start hearing somewhat of, of a music and then there is a, a strong connection and that's the louder music so we we decided to keep it really simple we could have made it more complex but it, we think that we will get the point across just like this well it is a little bit of a complex topic so starting <laughs> simple was probably yeah. a really wise move does connection always have to be positive mm, that's a very very good question yeah, I think it's possible that that you can connect over an argument or or when you're very angry at someone. I, I think there that that's a connection as well. Yeah, it makes sense because 
if you wouldn't care about something, you wouldn't have those strong emotions and caring often means connecting. Um, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, someone once had told me that the opposite of love isn't hate. It's much closer mm-hmm. to apathy as yes. far as like when you're healing from a relationship or something yes. like that. Yes, yes. I agree. When you're like, oh, I don't care. When mm-hmm. you're like cool and standoffish. I, I, I've always felt that that was the worst. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's the coldest. Like that's, that's even worse than when someone like has negative feelings towards you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because we all want to be seen, we want to be understood. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. instinctually, we want to connect. Yes. I also think that becoming adults in our society, we're we're often taught to disconnect. I think a lot of painful things that happen in our society are built on, you know, disconnection. You know, think of like bullying or, or hatred, racism, misogyny. It's all built on difference. And what difference means is that you're not empathizing with an other. So Mm. it's you're not connecting. So I think naturally, yeah, we want to connect. But I also think that our society somehow teaches us to disconnect. Like it helps a lot of power systems stay in place. And um, that's also one of the reasons I wanted to create this installation. It's, It's also very much a political installation that wants to critique our society is built on division and disconnection and let's move away from that and look at the critical potential of the connections between us i I really hope people will step away and start thinking about beyond the individual beyond the self-other distinction and start to think about what is it that we co-create when we really like allow someone in and and lower our defense mechanisms and allow this deep connection and all the beautiful things that can come from there. Installation artist and scholar Stephanie Cozy, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. You can participate in Cozy's experimental art installation July 29th through August 1st at the Emory University Visual Arts Gallery. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Back in high school, Jake Aaron combined his love of various musical styles, pop and experimental, to create music under the name Moloch. Since then, he and fellow bandmate Paul Stevens have released three Moloch LPs. They also created a song and music video in tribute to Terry Gross, the host of NPR's Fresh Air. We'll get to that in a moment, but first... We'll talk about their musical influences. Well, I love 20th century music, 21st century music, and, and have since since high school. I was a percussionist in the school band and was fortunate to be exposed to the music of John Cage around that time, be able to play that music around that time, which really moved me and spoke to me just how far out it was. And I felt a lot of freedom in that. 
I think people are scared of new music or experimental music in a lot of ways. And I think there's a lot of crap, too. I think there's a lot of <laughs> new music that just sounds like beeps and boops and, you know, doesn't, doesn't move me, we'll say. So you have to be able to separate right, um, right. what's good from what is uh, nice. To, to me, the, the good stuff has always made up for the music that doesn't move me. And I remember listening to the Low Symphony on 90.1 when I was in middle school mm-hmm. with my mom in the car and just mm-hmm. being blown this away. Mm-hmm. That Philip. Philip Glass, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, interpreting the music of David Bowie. And man, it just... It drove so hard and could like bob my head to it and <laughs> just really, really moved me. There's, there's no reason to be afraid of experimental music. Or any music. Yeah, or any music, yeah. truly. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us about the title of your band? Okay, so Moloch. Um, we spell it M-O-L-O-Q. I started using that moniker when I was in high school. I grew up in New Jersey in the Burbs in New York, and um, I started use, using it when I was like 17. Within a oddly short amount of time in school, I both had read some of Milton, Paradise Lost, where one of Satan's deputies is Moloch. When, um, M-O-L-O-C-H. C-H, yes. Yeah. And then I saw in a German class right around the same time, uh, Fritz Long's Metropolis, the silent film. And there's a sequence there where the protagonist, who's this sheltered, you know, very wealthy young man, sees the proletariat and he sees this vision of Moloch, the monster kind of like ambiguously turning knobs and steam and things, and he visualizes this monster, and it says in giant, amazing expressionist letters, it's Moloch on the screen. And I thought it was such a powerful image. It was a word I had never heard before. And the fact that I'd seen that name a couple times, I was like, this is very cool. And then in school, I studied um, Arabic and Middle Eastern language and culture, and the word Moloch, or really Moloch, or Melech in Hebrew, Melik in Arabic, all the Semitic languages share that root. So it's a very ancient word. It's really ominous. It's like all the other Molochs I've found in the world were like, like de- you know, death metal bands and like somewhere in Scandinavia and things like that. They use CH. Yeah, you know, they, they use CH. CH. That's part of why I changed the spelling. I was we like, have <laughs> the search engine optimization on lock <laughs> for M-O-L-O-Q. I'm intrigued by the Arabic. You said it's sure. similar in Hebrew. It would be melech, right? Melech, yeah. Which means king. Exactly. Not sinister. No. Okay. Let's talk about Terry the song, which is brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I wish we could show your video on the radio, but <laughs> all I can do is encourage listeners to check this out. Terry Gross, I love you the most, you're a great host, or do you prefer hostess, but something tells me that you would not, you are the best public radio Scott. You wrote this song, Terry, for 
the inimitable host of NPR's Fresh Air, Terry Gross. What sparked this idea? Well, I have been a Fresh Air listener as long as I can remember. I remember distinctly, even in elementary school, riding around in the car with my mom as the fourth verse of the song references. My mother raised me on public radio. She introduced me to She's brilliant. She is the greatest interviewer that I have ever heard. She's thoughtful. She's empathetic. I mean, this is a love song of sorts to Terry Gross, somebody who holds a really special place in, I don't know, my my life, I guess. I I really remember fondly those times driving around in the car with my mom listening to that. That love and admiration comes through so wonderfully. From WHYY to WABE from 7 to 8 Terry, I think you are so great and I cannot wait to tune in We, you know, we were kind of concerned that it might come off, ironically, at, at first. And, you know, I've had people even come up to me and say, like, so so are you serious? Like, do you really, like, this is a joke, right? And I always just tell them, no. Do you listen to Fresh Air? Have you heard Fresh Air? It's, <laughs> it's the best show on the radio. No offense to no, you. I'm not City offended, Life. let me tell no, you. No, many have said that you, Lois, are the Terry Gross of our wonderful city, Atlanta. Well, I take that (laughs) as high praise, and I just think the world of her and her work. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the video. The production elements are fabulous, and it seems that must have taken an enormous amount of work. How long did it take you to put it together? Well, we started shooting last fall i guess the fall of 2018 yeah we we had like two days of mm-hmm. shooting in sep- last september and then two days of pickup shots and yeah. that was it in terms of like you know it was so it was four days total we um, we cannot understate the importance of everyone who put time and energy into that video let's start with the opening you have team terry <laughs> <laughs> And all of these bright faces, eager young people with Terry T-shirts join you in this celebration of Terry. (laughs) Who came up with the idea for the puppet? The Terry puppet Mm. should be in the Smithsonian. Okay, so the puppet was made by my father-in-law, incidentally named Terry. Terry Terry Rooney. Rooney. (laughs) And he does these wonderful, very biting caricatures of public figures. We were very serious when talking with Terry Rooney about how to depict her. You know, we didn't want it to be unflattering. We didn't want it to be a Muppet. Then he suggested Bunraku, this puppetry style from Japan. And they sort of have these droll expressions. And it's a two, it's two people operating the puppet. And we were so fortunate to have two amazing puppeteers. Oh, my God. Who have both worked 
professionally as puppeteers for years. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. It is <laughs> Thank brilliant. You. And she loved it. I was so honored <laughs> that Terry Gross saw this video. Like, my jaw hit the floor. Mollocks, Jake Aaron, and Paul Stevens talking about their musical tribute to Terry Gross. You can watch the video for Terry and hear my interview with Mollock in its entirety on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the life of Chuck Berry in a program that's part of the series In Their Own Words on PBS. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. Special thanks to Kevin Rinker. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you would follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.